Amen. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, when it comes to frogs, uh, we probably have some different thoughts. Uh, but generally speaking, most of us probably don't have much of a, much of a fear of frogs. A couple years ago when my family was on vacation and we were at my cousin's house in Missouri, uh, she had a nice pond in the backyard where you could go swimming and uh, I enjoyed with my, one of my children, one of my daughters, uh, going around on a paddle boat and just catching a bunch of frogs, or at least trying. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun to uh, catch frogs. Uh, but, you know, you would never find me catching spiders or scorpions, or snakes with my children. That's when I turn and run the other way. Uh, but, um, you know, frogs aren't always that scary. Um, also, when we think of frogs, we might think of some famous fictional frogs. Uh, probably the most famous uh, is Kermit, Kermit the Frog, right? Or you might think of Frog and Toad, the main characters in a series of children's books, or the fairy tale, the princess and the frog, where the princess is to kiss a frog and turn him into a prince. Or today there's uh, the company Leapfrog, which creates educational toys and games for children and uh, has a number of frogs as their characters. Uh, also, frogs can be quite colorful and beautiful. Uh, my wife and I were in Long Beach, California a couple summers ago. We went to the Aquarium of the Pacific there in Long Beach and saw all kinds of beautiful, colorful frogs. Uh, but frogs also can make all kinds of sounds that are rather humorous as well. And so frogs are not that scary like other creatures, and they make for rather cute cartoon characters as well. So when we come to the second plague in the book of Exodus, it can almost seem a bit anticlimactic after the first plague. Uh, you may recall that in the first plague, God turned the Nile River and all the water in Egypt into blood. Just imagine that. I mean, all the water we've gotten in the last few days just all turned to blood. It would have been miserable. And so how will God top this in the second plague? Frogs. It seems almost anticlimactic, not too bad at first glance. Uh, but as we'll see when we look a little more closely, it was indeed a judgment on the Pharaoh and the Egyptians that laid them low. As Psalm 78 puts it, He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. So, even though at first glance it might not seem that bad, it really was. It was a judgment upon the Egyptians. And so let's consider this judgment, the second plague of frogs, frogs, and more frogs. And we'll see three things here from our text. We'll see first a persistent demand, and then secondly, a punishing plague, and then finally, a prayer for deliverance. And so we'll consider those three things from this passage. Uh, but first, we see a persistent demand here. Now, I assume that many here are probably quite familiar with the Exodus story, uh, but for those who maybe don't know the Exodus story, Israel is God's chosen people who have been enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years now. And in Genesis 15, 400 years earlier, God had uh, promised Abraham. He had chosen Abraham and uh, made a covenant with Abraham. 
And he promised Abraham that you're going to have uh, innumerable descendants, as many as the stars in the heavens and the sands on the seashore. And you're going to also have a, a land for your people to dwell in. But he also prophesied that his people would be enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. But then he also promised that with a mighty and outstretched arm, he would save and deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And so after 400 years of bitter oppression, enslaved in Egypt, the book of Exodus is God now acting to fulfill His covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to save His people from slavery. And uh, we're at the point now where He has begun to judge Pharaoh and the Egyptians with what will be ten plagues ultimately. And uh, this is the second plague. And God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and to say to him, let my people go that they may serve me. And just before this second plague, we see that the Lord told Moses to meet Pharaoh at the Nile River. Here, he tells him to go to him in his palace. And uh, if you look at all ten plagues, you'll see that there's a pattern in these plagues. Uh, There's three groups of three. And the tenth is really a climactic plague, the death of the firstborn uh, Egyptian sons. And uh, if you take each of the three groups of three, you'll find that in the the first of each triad, uh, God tells Moses to go and meet Pharaoh at the Nile River. Then in the second of each triad, he tells him to go uh, meet him, go to him in his palace, And in those first two of each triad, there's a warning that comes before the plague comes. But then in the third of each triad, there's no warning. The plague just comes suddenly upon them without any warning. And the reason it's good to point this out is that there's this this pattern in these plagues is that it shows that, that none of this is random acts of nature, but the hand of God's providence ruling over nature. Judging his enemies and redeeming his people, God is sovereign, he's in control, and he has a a plan here, and everything is happening according to his perfect plan. And uh, next we see in our text that the Lord, he comes again with the the same demand of Pharaoh. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, thus says the Lord Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. And this is what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh over and over again, and he's going to continue to tell him, go and tell him, let my people go that they may serve me. You see, God's demands don't change. He continues to demand that the Pharaoh let his people go so that they may worship and serve him, the one true God alone. God's demands are non-negotiable. And as one commentator notes, what was true for Pharaoh during the Exodus is true for sinners in salvation. God terms, God's terms remain unchanged. What God demands today is the same thing He demanded in the time of the apostles. When people asked what they had to, be do, had to do to be saved, the apostles said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God still requires sinners to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ today. We should not expect Him to make us another offer. Jesus Christ is God's best 
and only bargain for eternity. And so you see, God's demands, they don't change. His demand in the time of the apostles was repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the only option for salvation from your sins and misery and the judgment that is to come. And so too we see here that the Lord's demand of Pharaoh is the same persistent demand. Let my people go that they may serve me. And so if the demand today is repent and believe, that's that goes out today for anybody here has not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And uh, just as we see with the first plague, we see a, a warning here given before the plague comes. Now the Lord doesn't have to give any warning, uh, but we see that the Lord is patient and slow to anger. And so he gives time. He gives warnings in, in seven out of ten of these plagues. And of course, he gave an overall warning uh, before any of them started with the sign of Aaron's staff. You may remember that where Aaron's staff is turned into a serpent. And then the magicians come out and all their staffs turn into serpents. But then Aaron's staff comes and swallows up all their staffs, which was a which was a sign of things to come, that God is going to swallow up all of his enemies in judgment and in victory for his people. And so there's been these warnings. God is patient. He's slow to anger. And so too, if you haven't yet trusted in Christ alone for salvation, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day where people are warned. People are warned of the coming judgment a final eternal judgment when Christ returns. And so don't wait another day. Because as Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And so now's the day of salvation. Now's the day of warning. If anyone has not repented and believed, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And you will be saved. You will be saved from all of your sins and misery. And you can rest in the complete forgiveness of all your sins and salvation in Christ. And if you have trusted in Christ, be thankful for the salvation you have in Christ. But also this reminds us of the sense of urgency that we all must have for the lost in our community and in our family, right? That we should be praying for their salvation and that we should be sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And warning them of the coming judgment. Now's the day of salvation. And so let us pray for the salvation of the lost and share the good news of the gospel with others. And yet we see here that once again this warning of the Lord is spurned. Uh, the assumption of the text is that Pharaoh again hardens his heart and doesn't heed the Lord's warning. And so God is justly judging the Pharaoh who is without excuse. And so, too, there is no excuse today for those who refuse to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There was no excuse for Pharaoh. He had all the evidence and warnings that he needed, yet he spurned them all. And even more, there is no excuse today for people who spurn the warnings of God's Word and reject Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. And so there is no excuse. God is just. He's patient. He's slow to anger. But He will judge in the end when Christ returns. But now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. But we see here a persistent demand. A persistent demand. And secondly, then notice with me, we see a punishing plague in this passage. And before we look at the second plague more specifically, just want to make a few general comments about the plagues. Uh, First, notice here that this is a plague. Now, you probably didn't need me to tell you that. You don't need a seminary education to see that this is a plague. It actually just says that, right? It's a plague. So it might seem obvious, but it may surprise you that this is actually, though, the first time that the Bible uses the word plague. Typically, the Bible refers to these plagues as signs and wonders, and that's because they are miracles that point to theological truths about God and about the judgment and redemption that He brings. Uh, but plague is also a fitting word as a plague is a blow or a wound or a great disaster of some kind, and God said that He would strike the Egyptians, and so He does that. He strikes them with plagues. But second, it's worth noting that all the plagues are supernatural acts. Now, again, this may seem obvious to you all, probably preaching to the choir here that this is, these are supernatural acts, but some today try to argue for naturalistic explanations. For example, with the first plague, some say that it was just another case of when the Nile River would flood its banks annually, picking up red dirt along the way, making it look like blood. But that doesn't explain the fact that blood was everywhere in Egypt. All the water vessels turned to blood. And some then say that this second plague was also naturalistic and that due to the first plague, all the frogs would have had to leave the Nile because it was uninhabitable for them due to the first plague. And so they would have just left the Nile River. But that too is unpersuasive uh, in that this was not just frogs leaving the Nile River, but a miraculous multiplication of frogs like they had never seen before. Uh, Furthermore, the frogs are not just camped out on the Nile River. They proceed to just, they go into all the homes of the Egyptians all over the place. They're everywhere. They infest the whole land. And also the Bible speaks of the plagues as supernatural acts. It says in Psalm 78 that God sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. And so these are supernatural acts, make no mistake about it. 
Third, with the plagues, there's also a lot of creation language. You see this in the book of Exodus as a whole. Beginning in Exodus 1, they're fruitful and multiplying and filling Egypt, these Israelites. And here again, we see creation language in these plagues. These frogs are swarming. They're multiplying and swarming, which is creational language from Genesis 1. Well, then what we see with the plagues is a reversal, a reversal of God's good order of creation. In Genesis 1, things go from chaos to order. But in these ten plagues, they go from order to chaos. It's as if God is decreating the land of Egypt and putting it into chaos. In Genesis 1, humanity is to have dominion over the animal kingdom. But now the animal kingdom is being turned against humanity. And so the plagues show that God, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, is the one who rules over creation. He alone rules over creation, and He can unleash His creation on humanity at any moment. And so this shows the power and glory of God as Creator. And then focusing then on this second plague more specifically, when we look at the second plague, we see that this plague in particular is both horrible on the one hand and humorous on the other hand. It's horrible in that it wasn't a pleasant thing to go through, but it's also humorous for God's people to read about. I mean, if you heard in the news that the most powerful nation in the world today had some kind of a problem, maybe even like a, you know, a bully nation, maybe think of Russia today. All of a sudden, the, you know, the war ends, and, and why? Well, Russia had a, just billions of frogs take over. <laughs> I mean, it would be kind of funny, right? If a nation, a powerful nation, the most powerful nation in the world just all of a sudden has a frog problem, especially if they were a tyrannical nation, right? There's some, definitely some humor in this narrative, a holy mocking of sorts. As Psalm, as Psalm 2 puts it, the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs at those who challenge him and his people. So it's both horrible and humorous. But just try to imagine it for a moment. Frogs have come out of all the rivers, canals, and pools in Egypt. And frogs are now everywhere in the land, and you can't escape them. You go into your bedroom to wind down at night, and there's at least 50 frogs all over on the floor that you've got to try to get through without stepping on any of them. And then you go into your bed and you pull away the, the covers, go to lie in bed, and not just one, but 20 frogs are sharing the bed with you now, right? 20 frogs in your bed. You know, and you couldn't really, you know, they didn't have high-top beds like us today. They would have had them on the ground pretty much. So you'd be just sleeping with the frogs. And... Uh, you know, then you go and get up the next day to make coffee, and a few frogs ribbit and jump out of the coffee canister. Or you go to fire up your oven for a meal, and all of a sudden you smell the stench of <clears throat> roasting frogs. In your sock drawer, on your couch, in your children's toys, frogs everywhere, even in their crib. You go to use the toilet, and frogs jump out. You go to take a shower and you reach for the shampoo bottle and you grab a bullfrog. Your wallpaper is toads and 
bullfrogs. Some are green, some are brown, some are purple, some are black with red spots, and others are yellow with black spots. And they all just stare at you with their beady little eyes. Right? Not only would it have been a major nuisance, it would have also been quite humorous for God's people. But it also would have been a disaster for the environment. It would have been unsanitary for the preparation of food. And whenever they died, it would have been just a terrible stench. And on top of it all, it would have been super noisy, right? Frogs make all kinds of noises. Frogs chirp, they croak, they ribbit, they cluck, they grunt, and bark. A choir of frogs would have been a horrible noise pollution. You wouldn't get a second of silence to hear your own thoughts. You know, some of us like sleeping with a a sound machine and even might enjoy the sounds of the rainforest, (laughs) but this would have been overwhelming and would have been depriving of one's sleep. And again, this is not just a problem for the, the poor in Egypt. These frogs are in every nook and cranny in Egypt, including the Pharaoh's home and even on him. No one can escape this plague. They're even on the Pharaoh. And this shows a beginning of an intensity of the plague. There's this gradual intensifying of judgment on Egypt. Because in the first plague, Pharaoh just sort of, this is kind of annoying, this water turned to blood. He just goes back into his palace like a typical insensitive tyrant. You know, he's probably got his servants just waiting on him, making the plague not as miserable for him while all of his people are digging for water. But here, no, the frogs are all over the Pharaoh himself. No one can escape this plague. But we have to ask, why frogs? Why frogs? Well, this isn't random. Nothing is ever random with God. This plague and all the plagues are an attack, actually, on Egypt's gods. They're counterfeit deities. Uh, The first plague especially targeted a number of gods of the Nile River that the Egyptians thought were gods of the Nile River, and probably in particular, especially was targeted at Happy, the Egyptian god of the Nile. Here now we see the Lord attacking Hecate. Hecate in Egypt was depicted as having a female body with a frog's head. She was the spouse of the creator god, Knum. And it was believed that Knum fashioned human bodies out of clay on his potter's wheel, and Hecate then breathed the breath of life into them. And she was also believed to be the goddess of fertility and was thought to assist women in childbirth. And she also had the responsibility of controlling the frog population in ancient Egypt and protecting the frog-eating crocodiles. And so this plague is a sign that Hecate is truly nothing. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God who creates, who breathes the breath of life into His creatures, who is the God of fertility, causing frogs and all creatures to multiply at His will, just as He caused the Israelites to multiply in Exodus 1. And so the God of Israel is God alone, and He has no rivals. As we sang in Psalm 96, all the gods of the nations are worthless idols, They're worthless idols. And so, like the plague before this, there is more significance to it than it 
just being a hardship. It's a sign that the Lord rules over the gods of Egypt. Did you know that they have, in ancient Egypt, over 2,000 gods? But here we see in the plagues, in the Exodus account, there is no other god but Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so these are counterfeit deities, and, and God will unleash all the forces of creation to drive home that point, even if He has to do that through frogs. But we also know from Psalm 106 and, and 1 Corinthians 10 that although the, the idols are nothing, behind the idols are demons and Satan. And so these plagues also prove that Satan is no match for Yahweh, as we sing in the hymn by Martin Luther. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And so we see God's almighty power over the devil and the demons as well through these plagues. Now, it's easy for us, though, to hear about idolatry in ancient Egypt and sort of think to ourselves, that's silly. You know, what a bunch of fools to, to think that there's Hecate, this frog goddess, and, and have these little statues, and they worship deities through these little statues. And we think, you know, that, that just seems dumb. And yet, we must all humbly admit that when we rightly understand what idolatry really is in its essence, that we really all do struggle with idolatry. In one way or another, we, we may just be more sophisticated in our idolatry, but we have idols that we struggle with. In his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller writes this. He says, a counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that sh- should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So think about that. An idol is something so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, you would feel as if life is hardly worth living. An idol, he says, has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it really is idolatry. He says, an idol is whatever you look to and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. So you see, when we put it in those terms, we all must confess that we all struggle with idols. An idol can be a good thing. Right? Many of those things are, are good things, family, children. <laughs> but when they become ultimate things, they become idols. We must all confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, 
who made heaven and earth. He alone is our rock and shield. He alone is our salvation. He alone is our supreme joy and satisfaction in this world. And we could lose everything, but as long as we have God, we are good. We're in good hands. And we have all the joy that we could ever need. We have all the security we could ever need. We have all that we could ever need in God, our rock. And so we might not worship happy or Hecate, but we struggle with idolatry. We must turn from it more and more. And so let us turn from the idols of our hearts more and more and, and not worship the creation, but worship the Creator alone and use the creation for His glory and with thankfulness to the Creator above all. Again, the words of Timothy Keller, he writes, the living God who revealed Himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find Him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail Him, can truly forgive you. Isn't that good? He's the only one who can truly fulfill you, and if you fail Him, can truly forgive you. Well, we see here a persistent demand, and we see a punishing plague, and third, we see here a prayer for deliverance. We read in verse 7, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Beginning with the sign of Aaron's staff, which swallowed up all the magician's staffs, and in the first two plagues, uh, we see that the magicians, the magicians who also function as priests, sorcerers in ancient Egypt, no doubt drawing upon demonic forces, uh, that these magicians are able to, on a small scale, duplicate in some sense what Moses and Aaron perform by the power of God. Uh, some think that it's some kind of sleight of hand trick, kind of like our, you know, our magicians today that just do sleight of hand and smoke and illusions. Uh, others believe that they perform these things by the power of Satan. And uh, while the Bible clearly teaches that Satan and the demons aren't gods and are limited in their power, they nevertheless do have great power. 2 Thessalonians 2 says that the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all the idols in Egypt and the demons that are behind all these idols, it shouldn't surprise us if they are able to perform some false signs and wonders by the power of the devil here, which I think is most likely the case. But the funny thing is that they just add to the plague, right? They just add to the plague, and they can do nothing to reverse the plague of frogs. And in the third plague, they just give up. I'm out. We, this is the finger of God. We can't do anything else at this point. And so they're able to duplicate and make frogs themselves here. But the Pharaoh isn't too impressed with his magicians here. The last thing he wants, right, is, is more frogs, right? You can just imagine it, the, the Pharaoh, you know, upset about these frogs and saying to magicians, hey, do something about this. And then, ta-da, more frogs. <laughs> you can just imagine the Pharaoh's frustration. Come on, what in the world? I don't want more frogs. 
He wanted the frogs to go away. And so he starts having doubts about Hecate's power. And so surprisingly, he calls Moses and Aaron back to his palace to share with them a prayer request. He says in verse 8, plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. Now, this is remarkable. Earlier, Pharaoh, when Moses first walks into Pharaoh's presence and says, Yahweh says, let my people go, the Pharaoh just laughs. (laughs) Yahweh, who in the world is Yahweh? He's not, I don't know who he is, and he doesn't have any authority over me. And so Pharaoh asks, who is Yahweh? And now he's getting a lesson, a theology lesson from Yahweh himself. But here now, he uses the divine name and begs Moses and Aaron to plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs. He even vows to let the people go and that they might worship the Lord. He knows that this plague was a miracle of Yahweh and that only Yahweh can reverse it. And so we might at first glance think, well, is Pharaoh starting to believe? Well, this isn't so much true spirituality as it is superstition. This is common with unbelievers when they are in great distress, right? Uh, Maybe they're on their deathbed and they call a minister in to pray for them, a Christian minister, thinking, well, can't hurt. Let's get everybody to pray for me at this point. Also, like Pharaoh, many will promise God anything when they are in real trouble, but it's all just superstition. And we see here with Pharaoh that it's possible to know about the one true God and not know Him truly. It's possible to know that only God can save and not know Him as your only Savior. And it's one thing to ask others to pray for you. It's another thing to pray to God yourself. Pharaoh doesn't pray to God himself. He should have prayed to God. And not simply that he would take away the frogs, but that he would take away his sins. Because that's ultimately what matters. Uh, The preacher Charles Spurgeon once put it this way, Pharaoh's prayer dealt only with the punishment. Take away the frogs, take away the frogs, take away the frogs. That is his one cry. So we hear the sick exclaim, Oh, sir, pray that I may get well. The drunkard begs that he may be helped out of his poverty. The impenitent sinner cries, pray that my child may not be taken from me. It is not wrong to pray, Charles Spurgeon writes. It's not wrong to pray, take away the frogs. We should, we should all have prayed so if we had been surrounded by such pests. The evil is that this was the whole of his prayer. He said not, take away my sins, but take away the frogs. He did not cry, Lord, take away my heart of stone, but only take away the frogs. You see, sin is our ultimate problem. A plague is a judgment because of sin. Sin is our ultimate problem. And the good news is that if you pray to God yourself and ask God to take away your sins... He will, once and for all, remove the guilt of all of your sins and more and more remove the corruption of sin that remains. 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. What a wonderful promise to hear today and rest in and rejoice in. So far does He remove our transgressions from us, as far as the east is from the west. And so do you pray to God personally? Do you cry out to Him in prayer? Or are you like Pharaoh here who doesn't have a prayer of his own? Pray to God. Cry out to Him through faith in Christ. Then He will hear you. And the most important prayer that you'll ever pray is for God to take away your sins. To save you from them. And if you have prayed that, you can be sure that God will answer that. For the sake of Christ. Jesus is His name. Why? Because he comes to save his people from their sins. Well, even though Pharaoh's prayer request didn't arise out of true faith, but more from superstition, nevertheless, we see here that it's okay to pray for unbelievers. God is pleased to use our prayers to bless unbelievers, even our enemies, so that they might know the one true God who hears and answers prayers. As Moses puts it in verse 10 here, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord Yahweh our God. And so Moses responds to Pharaoh in verse 9, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Which is kind of odd, right? Like, I'm sure all the Egyptians weren't too pleased with uh, tomorrow. Why not today? Why tomorrow? Well, perhaps the Pharaoh thinks it will take a day to get Yahweh's attention or, pick, or, or that it'll take Yahweh 24 hours to take care of the frog problem and reverse it. Either way, Moses allows Pharaoh to pick the time so that it becomes even more obvious that Yahweh is God. In other words, you pick the time, I'll cry out to Yahweh, and you'll see that Yahweh truly is God. When Yahweh shows up right on time, And so the next day Moses cries out to God about the frogs, and we read in verse 13 that the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Now there's a few things worth noting about these verses. First is be encouraged that the Lord hears the prayers of his people. The Lord hears your prayers. He's not indifferent to you. He's not too busy to hear you. He loves you. You are his beloved child. Cry out to him in prayer and be assured that he always answers the prayers of his children, either in the way that you have asked or in the way that you would have asked if you knew everything that he knows. He's a good God. He's a faithful father, and he hears the prayers of his people and answers them according to his perfect will and timing for his glory and your ultimate good. And so go to him in prayer with all your needs. Secondly, we see here that this cleanup job, this is a, this, that the reversal of this plague is also a miracle. It adds miracle upon miracle, right? Because it's one thing to open Pandora's box to let all the frogs out. It's another thing to put them all back in the box. But at the Lord's command, the plague of frogs come to a quick end, just like that. 
The Lord gives the word, and with one loud ribbit, all the frogs croaked. They died instantly. And so this too is a miracle. But third, we see that this plague, it's not entirely over yet. It's not entirely over yet. The frogs are all dead, but now Egypt is on cleanup duty. Again, it's both horrible and humorous. Because now when you go to bed, you find 20 dead frogs. Now when you go into your pantry, you find dead frogs in your flour and in your sugar and your coffee grinds. Everywhere you go in your house, you smell the foul stench of dead frogs. And with the, with the heat of the Egyptian sun and no air conditioning, surely it was a foul odor. Earlier, the Israelites complained to Moses that he had made them stink in the eyes of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and now we see the same word again, but it's Egypt who stinks before God. And they have to shovel all these dead frogs back to the Nile River or wherever they were to dispose of them, right? You think that shoveling snow is bad? <laughs> just imagine all the snow that we got this winter, and it's all just dead frogs, not going to melt away. It's just going to sit there and stink until somebody, all of us, get out shovels and start carting it all away. I mean, I'll never complain about shoveling snow again after studying this passage. Nevertheless, as we see in verse 15, the, the Pharaoh denies, he denies his sense of smell, he hardens his heart, he reneges on his vow, and does not let the people go, as we see over and over again in this story. As soon as the frogs are gone, it's like out of sight, out of mind. But beloved, let that not be true of us. If you've been praying for God to deliver you from some affliction, and he does, thank him in prayer. Praise Him in the assembly of God's people and obey Him in gratitude. And above all, let us praise Him and thank Him for the great deliverance that we have in Christ above all. Because above all, God has revealed Himself to us in His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who came to deliver us from all of our sins and misery. Jesus is the one who never bowed a knee to an idol, Jesus is the one who conquered Satan for us. Jesus is the one who died on the cross for all of our sins of idolatry. He never once sinned. And yet our sins were imputed, credited to his account on the cross. And he became a plague for us on the cross. Our sins were placed on him and he bore the wrath of God that we all deserved because of our idolatry. He suffered more than the Egyptians suffered in all the plagues combined as he suffered hell itself on the cross. Though he never once sinned, but he suffered hell in our place. And now Jesus is risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God where he rules over all things for the sake of his people who trust in him for salvation, for the sake of his church. And so let us put all our trust and hope in Jesus Christ alone, and thank God for our deliverance in Him. Beloved, no matter what you see on the news, Jesus reigns as your Savior and Lord. No matter what happens in your life, Jesus reigns as your Savior and Lord. No matter 
what you feel. Jesus reigns as Savior and Lord. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our almighty God and merciful Savior. And so let us put all of our trust and hope in Jesus and live lives of gratitude. For one day He will come again and He will right every wrong and judge all of His and our enemies. But for all who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation and trust in Him, it will be then the ultimate deliverance when Jesus returns. He's going to wipe away all tears from our eyes and there will be no more sin or sorrow or suffering ever again. Death itself will be swallowed up in the victory of Christ just as Aaron's staff swallowed up all those snakes. Jesus will swallow up death once and for all for His people And we will share in the victory of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to his return. But put all your trust and hope in Jesus this day. Rest in his completed victory on your behalf. And thank him all the days of your life. In your prayers, in your praises, and in your obedience to his word. Live lives of gratitude and share this good news with others. Let's pray.